Opening up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy. In Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji, we all of us are workers united. We must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete floors to back our lot of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our labour is a name to make a man feel proud. Welcome to all our listeners and a welcome to our interviewee today, Philip Court. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry. Thanks, Ralph. Good to be here. And uh, what we're going to do today is reflect on Phil's life in the industry, which has many aspects, of course, and uh, then where he left the industry and a little bit maybe about where you ended up. We will uh, reflect on the fact that we are recording this at Scott's Church in Collins Street. And Collins Street, of course, is a street that uh, was built by building workers over probably nearly two centuries, probably 150 to 200. And uh, we're sitting in the uh, Assembly Hall, which I remember as the uh, venue where people were gathered to provide the marshals for the first Vietnam moratorium in May 1970. And we were all G'd up to go and uh, deal with the Nazi party who were going to front up and fight the communists and all the rest of the bullshit. And uh, we actually assembled here in the hall and the Nazis turned up and there's a dozen of them, there's 100,000 anti-war demonstrators and they got their tails between their legs and they went home. And brother, you were there. I was there, yeah. I was. Uh, that was my final year at school, and uh, I was involved with some radical students at that school. And one of the things we did was organise a strike and a walkout to attend that uh, that first moratorium. I remember it very well. One of our number, not me, stole the uh, school's cadet uh, unit flag from the from the hallway and uh, and flew it upside down as a sign of distress for what was happening. And I don't think too many of the cadets actually wanted to go to Vietnam, which is why they joined the cadets. But anyway, it was a way of getting out of it. But also, uh, as we sit here in Assembly Hall looking out over Collins Street, I'm also looking at a building, uh, Currajong House, which is a job which I worked on back in the uh, 1980s. And uh, in fact, at the time of deregistration of the BLF, it was the only job in the whole of Melbourne flying the Eureka flag. And they couldn't touch us because it was a private developer and uh, the builder went broke 
and the developer took us over and we completed the job for him and we got 36 hours and we did all sorts of things. But we flew the flag and Steve Crabb looked down from his office in the Rue House on the job and thought of every which way he could to square up the bloody uh, the insult. But anyway, we'll get on to the D-Reg and all that stuff in due course. So, Phil, when did you come into the industry and in what way did you come into the industry and what was it like for you in those days? Well, actually, I had a false start into the industry in 1970, uh, just after the school year had finished, uh, so my final year at high school. I was 18 years of age and uh, I, looked at a, I looked at the newspaper and saw a situation vacant for a British labourer out in Royal Park, not far from where I was boarding at the time. thought, there's a good way to earn a bit of money, no worries. And so I rocked up. The bloke took one look at me, the foreman. He goes, I don't think you'll get a last son. Anyway, I said, no, <laughs> give me a go. And there you go. So what, what was I doing? I, well, I had soft hands. I had no gloves. I was unfit. And we were barrowing concrete blocks. And uh, it was rough. And I only lasted to smoke up. Then I was exhausted. He just paid me off with a couple of $2 notes out of his back pocket. And I remember jumping on the tram there at Royal Park and promptly falling asleep. <laughs> and getting to the end of the line and wondering where I was. So uh, that sort of scared me off the construction industry for a while, and I became a clerk in the Postmaster General's Department to please my mum, because she thought that, uh, you know, those jobs were permanent. Those were the days. But at the beginning of 1974, um, that was the beginning of my proper involvement in the construction industry. I already knew some of the organisers because of my involvement in the anti-war movement. Uh, I was radicalised during the last two years of my uh, education. And uh, so I already knew people like Mickey Lewis and uh, Marco Masterson and Normie Wallace and uh, various others like that who, who were involved in, in some of those things. And more than that, on my 18th birthday, I was actually recruited into the Communist Party Marxist-Leninist by a bloke called Rick Oak, who was an offsider of Ted Hill, who was waiting for me when I left school that day on my 18th birthday. Uh, a strange man I'd never met before who asked me to sit in the car with him. <laughs> Foolishly, I did. <laughs> and he ended up saying that he was uh, offering to recruit me into the Maoist political party, which I agreed to do. So... In 1974, in starting in the industry, I was already connected, if you like, on the political side of things. So I went into the union office to get my first union ticket there in Ligon Street and uh, signed up. And who was there but Mickey Lewis? And I knew him. And he said, ah, he goes, what are you doing here? I said, I'm looking for work in the industry. I'm sick of the PMG. He said, come with me. I've got just the job for you. And we walked around the corner and there was the old Melbourne jail and part of it was part of the Emily McPherson Institute. With There was the admin offices of the old jail and the chapel and uh, Cochrane Constructions were doing a, a major uh, Renault refit there. And it turned out that Mickey knew that the foreman was looking for an offsider for the guy who was the, who was the resident scaffolder there, a bloke called John Hislop. And so uh, Mick just waltzed me onto the job, went up to the office, just said to the general foreman, 
you're looking for an offsider for your for your scaffolder, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Well, here he is. Let me introduce you to Phil. This is the one who it's going to be. The foreman really had no choice in the matter. He sort of he accepted that, and that's how I got my start. And Within how much did you know about scaffolding at that point? Uh, about as much as you could write on the back of a Panadol with a jackhammer, I reckon. <laughs> I remember the first time uh, John got me up about eight foot above the ground on a single plank and told me to walk a tube along, and I was like a, I felt like a sort of a tightrope walker, you know. And he said, "No, that's not how you do it." And he chucked the, chucked the tube over his shoulder and he just walked that plank as if it was three foot wide. He said, "That's what you got to do." Well, I survived that. Then he took me down to the DLI and got me a learner's permit, and I was off and running. Uh, so that's how I became a scaffolder. Um, what, if I think about the way things were in those days, they were a fair bit different to how they are now. For starters, John used to take me over to the Dover Hotel every lunchtime and we'd have a steak sandwich and several pots before we got back on the working at height, uh, which is something I'd certainly not be recommending to anyone today. Uh, it had only been less than a year since riding the hook was actually banned in legislation, in regulation. And I think a few, a few blokes around town uh, hadn't quite got the message yet when I started. There was not a lot of stability or, or security at all in the industry. Generally, people were on an hour's hire and fire. Every day there'd be advertisements in the situations vacant for, uh, for steel fixes, for uh, concrete hands, this sort of thing, because there was a big pour happening. Blokes would sort of line up at the gate and uh, work their butts off, and then about an hour before knock-off they'd be paid off, and then maybe they'd have to go somewhere else the next day. So it was pretty rough and ready from that point of view. There was no annual leave, there was no public holidays, there was no long service leave, there was no super, no sick leave, none of that. Um, also, what else do I remember? They, uh, they used to pour concrete with things called rickshaws, which I think two and a half barrel loads of concrete made a rickshaw load. Uh, two motorcycle wheels and a, and they were a scoop. They were rough. They were hard. They were re- it's really, really hard backbreaking work pushing these rickshaws around if you had to. I got transferred down to the Royal Melbourne Hospital where they were putting a couple of extra floors on there and they were just grandly spraying asbestos uh, under, you know, for fire rating yep. under the floors. For, um, and it was just everywhere. A couple of Hessian, Hessian sheets around where they were working was as good as it got. And a lot of that was only getting removed about 10 years ago. <laughs> Exactly, you know, but there, at that stage it was the miracle, uh, it was regarded <laughs> as, as the sort of miracle thing that would cut your costs because it would give you your fire rating cheaply. Um, so that sort of stuff was happening. There, there was really no such thing as kind of fall protection really as we know it now. You know, riggers walk the steel, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, jackhammers, I remember this too, that... The old 80 pound breakers, you know, they would make your ears bleed. Um, an early, an early campaign that I remember being involved with, with the BLs, was to, uh, was to ban the 80 pound breakers until something could be done to reduce the noise of them. And all these sort of ad hoc solutions started coming up that people were wrapping stuff around them to try and, uh, try and reduce the decibels. But 
Um, that was one of the early campaigns I remember, and um, I'm really glad that that, that that one succeeded. Yes, indeed it did. Though, uh, lots of other noises have uh, developed in the meantime as the industry has become more and more mechanised. Yes, yeah, that's true. There was not a lot of mechanisation around then, uh, you know, apart from cranes and winches and and uh, and, and gin wheels, of course. What you, if you if you could call that mechanisation, um, and and certainly uh, concrete pumps didn't really exist then at all. Uh, so you know, a lot of the work was backbreaking. It was very it was very physical for sure, and and um, I, I'm. Obviously, very glad that a lot of that's been redesigned in a way that's not quite so backbreaking and yeah. physical. And on site, it was pretty rough and ready. Amenities were not exactly uh, where they are today, and the organisation of the job was pretty rough and ready too. People coming and going, and you, most of the time you wouldn't have known who was actually on the job and what they were supposed to be doing, except maybe the foreman. Yeah, and sometimes they wouldn't know either. And <laughs> Depends if they how, how long they stayed at the pub at lunchtime. But anyway... Yeah, the unofficial hour for the scaffolders. Yeah. But, uh, yes, uh, it was pretty rough and ready, that's for sure. I mean, there, there were... Actually, even in 1974, when I went down to the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the BLF members on site there did actually elect a safety officer. This is well in advance of... Um, any legislation that, that allowed for health and safety reps or any of that. But there was a guy that was elected as a health and safety officer or something like that. I don't know what the term was exactly on that site who was responsible for trying to keep a, an eye on things. But the standards that he was trying to enforce were pretty inadequate anyway. But those things, those things had started at least in, in, in some kind of a semi-official way. But, you know, a lot's changed since then. One of the amazing... Can I talk about, um, an, uh, yeah, a couple of episodes that happened to me while I was at the Royal Melbourne yes. Hospital in relation to the BLF? Yes. Okay, so this is at the time uh, when there was a thing called federal intervention. In New South Wales. In New South Wales, which was the... Uh, Gallagher, of course, as well as being State Secretary and Vice Chairman of the Maoist Party... Uh, was uh, also the general secretary of the of the uh, BLF at a federal level, and Jack Mundy and Joe Owens were uh, not of that persuasion. They were aligned with uh, the rival Communist Party, and uh, and uh, and they were uh, rather independent, shall we say, of the rest of the BLF in New South Wales. And anyway, for for whatever reason, Gallagher uh, and the other uh, state branches decided to intervene and basically take over the New South Wales branch and that involved organisers from the other state branches being sent up to Sydney together with other people like crane drivers who were going to break the Monday uh, BLF's bands on sites and things like that. So it left things pretty short-handed back at home during that time and in the early days it was not sure how that was going to go. There was a major battle going on on the sites of Sydney between who had coverage of what. And, uh, and every now and then that meant that the, uh, that the Mundy and Owens BLF branch would call mass meetings to take the next step. 
typically at the Sydney Town Hall. So some weeks after the intervention had started, I'm working away down at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and uh, an underling subforeman came up to where I was working and said, you want it down in the office? And I went down there and there was the site supervisor. This was a Cochrane construction job. And there was Mickey Lewis. And Mick said, the general wants you up at the office. And I looked and the site supervisor said, yeah, well, do as he says, go with Mick. Don't worry, you're still getting paid. So I jumped in the car, this is very early in the morning, um, jumped in Mick's car and next thing you know I was in I was in Gallagher's office and there was the photo of him and Chairman Mao behind him and uh, he said, oh, I've got a little job for you. And I said, what's that? He goes, you're going to fly up to Sydney and you're going to sit in the Monday's uh, mass meeting and you're going to come back here and tell me what they said because they won't know you. And I said, I've never been to Sydney and I've never even been in an aeroplane. He goes, don't worry, that's all taken care of. He said, so uh, you do that. And, it, and here's your aeroplane ticket. It was an open return ticket to Sydney. Here's some money to get you on a taxi and back and whatever. And here's a notepad and make sure you take as many notes as you can and go to the meeting. I said, what if they ask me for my union ticket? He goes, yeah, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, he goes, they won't like it if you've got a Victorian ticket. He goes, hang on a minute, I'll sort that out. And he pulled out a Queensland ticket, a blank one. He said, what name do you want to be? I said, whatever it was, Joe, something rather. He wrote it out like that. He already had Vince Dobinson's signature on it anyway. And he dated it. And he gave me this Queensland BLF ticket. And he said, if anyone asks you for a ticket, just tell them you're working on a housing estate. And he named a suburb, which I'd never heard of, out in the boondocks of Sydney. He said, uh, and you've just come down from Queensland. And he said, that should be right. They won't worry about that. Um, and if anyone asks you what you're taking notes for, just tell them, um, because you're the only bloke that's uh, fair income enough to go to the meeting, and at least you're going to do is report back to the others. That was the advice he gave me. Next thing I know, I was on a, in a taxi to Tullamarine. I was on an aeroplane for the first time, taxi into the town hall. I'm sitting in a town hall full of blokes, I'm still in my working gear, so that that was all right. Furiously taking notes. Sure enough, so you the didn't bloke have to go in disguise. You just went normal. <laughs> That's right. The bloke alongside me says, "What are you doing, taking all those notes?" I told him what Gallagher had told me to say. He he, he put his arm around me, pat me on the back. Good young fella. Nice. So I got all the notes, jumped the taxi back, came back to Melbourne into the office and handed it all over to Norman. Debriefed him. And then back on the job the next day. And a week or two later, there was a second meeting, so the same thing happened again. <laughs> um, well, you know, Mick comes down, gets me off the job, flight, flight to Sydney. Oh, I'm an expert now, aren't I? I've been to Sydney once. So I'm feeling pretty cocky. And I'm just walking into towards the uh, town hall, you know, not, you know and, and all of a sudden, a woman who had been hanging around the monthly meetings of the BLF down in Melbourne, uh, but had relocated to Sydney and was a very staunch uh, uh, supporter of uh, Jack Mundy and Joe Owens, she saw me from a distance and she goes, Hey, what are you doing there? She knew I was a Gallagher person. And all of a sudden I could see her turning her back and she was looking for a couple of heavies to sort me out. 
And so I just uh, turned tail and bolted. And I got into a phone box, and uh, in those days, you know, you had to have a pocket full of 20-cent coins to make, uh, you know, long-distance calls to Melbourne, I could tell you. And I was running through the 20 cents, ringing the office, what do I do, what do I do? And uh, they put me through to Gallagher, and, and he said, okay, don't worry. He goes, there's a pub just over the road from the town hall. He goes, just go and park yourself in the pub, all right? He goes, blokes will get jack of the meeting and they'll start drifting over to the pub before it finishes. He goes, just find out from them what's going on and get out before the meeting's over for your own safety and come back. So that's what I did. So I had to get the results uh, second-hand by blokes coming over to the pub and I got enough to satisfy Gallagher anyway. So I'm back on the job for another couple of weeks or something like that the third time I got visited by Mick Lewis, I ended up staying in the bowels of the Trades Hall for a couple of months, and that was because the uh, policy officer, Dan Hallier, who worked for the federal office of the BLF, he was up in... in the basement? Yeah, in the basement. He was in Sydney uh, with the intervention, with the takeover. And so um, Gallagher said, well, you know, I'm making you the acting policy officer. And so for a couple of months I sat in the bowels of the Trades Hall there trying to put out propaganda for gestechnid propaganda uh, to be given out to the organisers to take around the sites. And at the end of that time, um, Gallagher actually offered me uh, Bud Cook's job, which was permanency officer. But he'd always said that that was a ridiculous job, it shouldn't exist and it wouldn't go anywhere. And so I didn't know whether it would be pleased or not that he was offering me a job he thought was totally ridiculous <laughs> so I just anyway I knocked it back and I went back on the tools <laughs> so you went back to scaffolding yes I did yeah and in terms of scaffolding there's always been two groups of scaffolders those in direct hire by the builder uh, and those working for subcontractors yep were you in the first group or the second group I started. Or did off, you change? I did, yeah, yeah. So, um, so for the first uh, couple of years, I was working directly for the principal contractor. Um, so, f- f- my first employer was uh, Cockrums, and then uh, Jennings, A.V. Jennings, on the St Hilda's College job at Melbourne Uni. Um, I'm sorry, I'm giggling away here because <laughs> this seems to be following a very similar pattern to my own. Ah. Uh-huh. At A.V. Jennings, I worked for their schools division as a scaffolder and labourer and I did a fair few jobs <laughs> with the old A.V. Jennings. Yeah. Well, I was there when the, uh, there was a lockout in uh, 75, I think yes. it was, and, and yeah. that's the job I was on, actually, when the lockout happened, which uh, led me to working for a Dickensian place in Richmond, in Bridge Road, called Melbourne Clutch and Break. And my job there was burning the asbestos <laughs> off brake shoes in a furnace without any protection whatsoever. And a, blue asbestos. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was offside in a bloke who always had a fag hanging out of his mouth um, who looked like he was about 80, but he was probably only about 45 mm. because of what he was doing. And we were just chucking asbestos fibre into the uh, air of Richmond non-stop. That was the job I was on also when, uh, when the dismissal happened, when, um, the, yep. when Whitlam was sacked by a Sir John Kerr. And uh, I remember um, the rest of us, we just walked off the job when the news came through. We went down to the city square 
and uh, and 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 Bob Hawke came along and don't know whether it was that day or shortly afterwards and pleaded for uh, people not to go to extremes and I'll use the words peaceful. that I remember and that was cool it I'm telling you to cool it yeah that sounds and, familiar. Uh, there was uh, a fair bit of playing up in the crowd, if I remember correctly. And yeah. uh, a bloke who was an organiser of the Stormen and Packers had a white hard hat on standing behind Bob and got knocked off his head with a half full stubby, I think. <laughs> it was a big day out. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, what you're saying about uh, the stop work and going to town, at the time I was working at... Uh, Esso down on Western Port for a uh, refractory bricklayer and uh, we got told by the security guard Whitlam's just been sacked so I rang the office off his phone and they said stop work so I went back and we had a uh, discussion among the uh, brickies and the labourers about what we're going to do and we all came down to one bloke and I said to him what are you going to do because I knew he was a lip he voted liberal and he said, I might be a liberal, but I'm a builder's labourer. If Norm Gallagher tells me I'm on strike tomorrow, I'm on strike tomorrow. Because the builder's labourers has done more for labourers than any, any government or anyone else. So, no worries. Mm. So we stopped. And uh, it was a big day out. Unfortunately, uh, somewhat uh, <coughs> fortified by alcohol. <laughs> but never mind... It's all part of the history. Yes, it was a bit of a universal lubricant, I think. Um, and the scaffolders, particularly contract scaffolders, were in fact notorious for mm, having a drink. They were. I'm surprised uh, so many of them survived, actually. But so, so anyway, uh, after that, I just can't quite remember the sequence, but certainly um, I was working at Monsanto for a while, for Ralph M. Parsons. Parsons, yes. Uh, yeah, I was there and um, I... Uh, but there started to go into contracts, working for contract scaffolders. I got a start with uh, with Cyclone for a while. Red hats they wore. Oh, that was a very vaunted thing if you got a job with Cyclone. First, uh, one of the first jobs I had there was with Ian Bolton. We were uh, shifting the swing stages around at the top of Nauru House which I ended up working in Nauru House uh, many years later um, in a very different capacity, or a slightly different capacity. Which we will come to. Yes. But uh, you yeah. certainly worked, if you worked for Cyclone, you worked everywhere, and swing yeah. stages was, were their specialty. Yeah. Uh, had a gang. And, uh, Those counterweights. Uh, taking them yeah. up ladders and stairs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you built muscles, if nothing else. <laughs> but... Uh, in terms of the contract scaffold game, uh, it was a pretty tough game, as we've just been suggesting, but it was also a different vibe, shall we say, to a lot of the other sections of the industry. The contract scaffolders worked together, drank together, stuck together, and there were scaffold meetings. And uh, they were, in those days, back in the 70s, uh, conducted by the late and great Normie Wallace, and there was a contract scaffolding agreement and uh, you will recall some of the meetings and uh, some yes. of the issues that contract scaffolders took up. Yes, I will and uh, I do recall that and that was, I think, uh, Norm Gallagher regarded the scaffolders as his kind of uh, vanguard really into 
into improving conditions. Them and the crane crews mm. were the, his sort of two um, trump cards, so to speak, in terms of trying to get some better conditions in the industry. And so I remember, uh, for example, sick leave was really pioneered through the scaffold company agreement. And there was only a few days to begin with, but uh, compared with what the rest of the industry had, which was zip, it was a major step forward. And there were, so there were a number of other issues like that that were, uh, that were dealt with through the scaffold company agreement and by the scaffolders meeting together as a group, the contract scaffolders. And that was a very, as you say, that was a very tight-knit group and they, uh, and people would sort of move around often from uh, one of the contract scaffold companies to the other. Some people were rusted on to one particular company, but there were others that floated around between them as uh, jobs ebbed and flowed, really. And so my time with the uh, contract scaffolders in Melbourne was actually relatively short-lived. I had much more to do with them when I, uh, when I was working down in the valley which uh, I was from 1979 through to basically nearly the end of 86. And I worked at different times for SGB down there. I worked for um, also a company called Skyline Scaffolding. Not the the Bones Skyline Scaffolding with Big Ben in Melbourne, Mm. but a Sydney-based scaffold company uh, using the same name. Yeah, and then for a short time, uh, me and another couple of blokes actually um, formed what was really our own subcontract company under SGB. That didn't last very long, I can tell you. I was hopeless as a subcontractor. And SBG did not show much mercy if you stuffed up. Well, they, I was protected. I've got to tell you, I was protected to, yeah, yeah. Uh, down there because the guy who was running SGB in the valley in those days, this is when we were building uh, Yulon W and yeah. Loyang, uh, was Lenny Rourke. Well, you just don't realise how close we are together with all of this. <laughs> and, uh, and so Lenny Rourke uh, protected me and saved me from uh, basically getting the sack uh, on more than one occasion. Let me tell you. And he was very close to uh, the BLF organiser who was down there, Harry Carslake. He was not aligned to Gallagher's uh, faction of the Communist Party, but I think that's why uh, Harry used to think that's why he got banished to the valley. But uh, Harry actually did a really good job down there under often difficult circumstances. And Lenny Rourke, Harry Carslake and the... And the uh, the DLI inspector who was sent down there, Bert Workman, you know, used to get together regularly, and and I got I got invited into that kind of uh, group too, mm. and uh, yeah, good good things came out of that, a lot of good things. Because Levy Rourke was in fact a BLF organizer mm. who went to Sydney with the uh, federal intervention, and when I was working with him, also in the seventies after that period. He told me some of the things that uh, went on in that uh, particular intervention and some of them, uh, to this day, hard to fathom and uh, probably not the sort of stuff you recount on something that's going to be broadcast uh, around the world but he came very close to being, well, basically having his face cut off him when he walked onto a job and... uh, he said, had enough. And he went back, and he was a good scaffolder, Lenny. 
He taught me. I, in fact, uh, worked with Lenny at the hot strip mill down at Westernport, and uh, Lenny was the one who uh, taught me about scaffolding more than anyone else. And uh, he also taught me a few things about being a builder's labourer. And one of them was when we were asked to pull out timber bearers for the form workers, uh, walk them along with the scaffold underneath the machine deck that was being constructed. I said, no, I'm a scaffolder, I don't carry wood. And he said, you're a bloody builder's labourer with a scaffold ticket and you'll carry it, son. Never knock back work. And he was a, he was a really top bloke to work with and we used to go to the BLF uh, monthly meetings together. Good bloke. And uh, the valley um, really was probably, even though there was work in Melbourne, it was probably the centre of construction in Victoria at the time. Yeah, in a lot of ways it was. I'd actually spent a fair bit of my childhood and early teenage years uh, living in Morwell. My dad was in, in the SEC and that was the reason for that. But I went back there basically because work in it's 1979 was drying up a lot. It was really hard to, uh, to get work. I was working at the time down in Frankston for um, a mob called C.D. Mason doing some work on the, a new building to the school down there. Martin Greening was the BLF organiser down there. He, 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 in his suit and his black tie, he came along and he made me the shop steward for that job while I was there in late 78. And he said to me, whatever you do, I'll back you. I didn't know what to think of that. But Martin had this habit of uh, the way he would deal with a, a foreman if he had a blue with him is he'd walk into the office and uh, to grab the guy's attention he'd say, What's the similarity between, in his Irish accent, what's the similarity between this here job and this here tie I'm wearing? And the foreman would look at him dumbfounded and he goes, they're both black. I'll see you on Monday. And that's it, you just leave them hanging. Like, what are you even blueing about? You'll find out on Monday. <laughs> yes, uh, he was direct. <laughs> but uh, worked, worked with Martin as the organiser on a few jobs around Frankston and Western Port and so on, but uh, he was in a class of his own. He was. And he was on the job first thing in the morning. Worst driver of a union vehicle of all time, how he survived is absolutely beyond me, but he only passed away a few years ago and it wasn't by car accident. Well, that's a miracle. It, it, it is a miracle. And he never forgot. <laughs> he never forgot. If you... Yeah. If you did the wrong thing, mm. you weren't financial, you worked in breach of the bloody bands or something, he never forgot. There was one particular roof tiler who uh, didn't do the right thing. And Martin was driving back from the valley, because he used to go down there a, a fair bit, I think, at, in the early 80s. And uh, he's driving back, it's been pouring rain, and the clouds parted and the sun came out, and it lit up a church off the, off the highway, but just sort of on a hill. And, of course, it shone, and Martin noticed it. And he went, oh. And then he realised there were blokes coming out onto the roof of this church. And Martin said, roof tire. And he pulled off the highway. And this bloke had been avoiding him for probably five years, but not any longer. <laughs> Martin squared up. Yeah. Well, I worked on the hot strip mill too. Yeah. For Johnson Waygood. Or 
Johnson No Good, as we used to Johnson call Johnson No Good, as they were. Yeah, uh, it was when I did a little bit of uh, stint as a rigger rather than a scaffolder. So I did a little bit of rigging work down and there. And working with Danger Man. Uh, yeah. Wayne Nestor. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't just walk the steel, he danced it. Uh, he did somersaults. He, uh, anyway. He wasn't called Danger Man just because of the TV show. They had a they had a safety officer there, Johnson No Goods, and um, to try and interest the uh, blokes in watching some sort of uh, safety uh, eight mil video or something like that, he put on the grog. Right, so we on a Friday evening with the company's permission, you know, we'd we'd knock off early and go over to the big smoko shed area, and he'd whack this um, whack this uh, safety video on, and then. The beer had come out, and then we'd all drive home. Amazing. As far as the Somerville Hotel, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And then, and then I got transferred when that uh, when that finished. I they, they put me on a job. This is the beginning of 1977. They put me on a job uh, at the hot uh, at the uh, glassworks in Spotswood, which yeah. was a sh- shut down, putting a new conveyor in, and it was was really pathetic. You know, there was one, uh, there was just one shed there. Uh, for us, the uh, the rigging crew, that was full of slings and chain blocks and turfers and you name it, and that was our smoko shed. That was the lot. And as far as I could see, there was no union representation. You know, so I had a chat with the boys over a beer lunchtime. Said, "Yeah, we've got to do something about that. Someone's got to ring the office, and we've got to because you need an organizer there to get a shop steward." Um, oh, you can do that, Phil. Yeah, good on you, mate. No worries. So I rang the office. And said, we need, we, you need to bring an organiser down here. We need a shop steward. Something's got to be sorted out. Anyway, I think it might have been the next day or something like that. The foreman comes and grabs me and he takes me over and who's standing there but a certain, a BLF organiser. I won't say who it was. He's not with us anymore. And a little bloke I've never seen before. And this little bloke is absolutely spitting chips and he says, are you the mongrel that rang up the BLF and said there's no shop steward here? And I what could I say? And the organiser's just saying nothing. And I said, uh, well, yeah. And he goes, I'm the shop steward here. I've been here for 20 years or 15 years with the blokes in the glassworks. We won't have any split shop here, mate. I go, well, mate, we've been here for a couple of weeks. The least you could have done was shown your head round the corner. <laughs> Not every day you get a new shed on your property, is it? And anyway, so the, rig- the riggers were directly employed, and they had the riggers loft, <laughs> and you were either in, in the riggers loft or you weren't. Well, I reckon he was spending all his life in the riggers loft. He didn't know what was going on else- elsewhere. Or the spot, or the spots would. Yeah, so. So that was that was it, and the uh, the next day the foreman told me I'd been transferred down to the Shell refinery in Geelong, and his wife and my wife were both about to drop a bundle, um, and he because we mentioned that we'd spoken about that together, and he knew that my missus was due any tick of the clock. We lived in Richmond, mm. and he knew that I had to knock that back, yep. and I said I can't go down to Geelong. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a shame. No worries. You go to the pub now and I'll have your money brought up to you in an hour. And that was that. That's how I ended my days with Johnson way good. But then when I was in the valley uh, working for Lenny Rourke and SGB and uh, went out to one particular job at Loyang and there was a, it was, it was a Johnson way good job and 
It was the same foreman. <laughs> and I'm spending, saying day to a lot of fellas I've worked with. And the next thing I know is this bloke uh, says, you want it in the office. And Lenny Rourke was on the phone and he said, just leave straight away and, uh, and come back to the office. So I got there and he goes, what on earth have you done? I said, what do you mean? I just, well, tell me what happened. I went to the job, you know, I knew a few blokes. I said, g'day, we got on with the job. He goes, well, this foreman has has uh, rung up and said, if you don't get this bloke off the site before Smoko, you'll never you'll never have any more work with Johnson Way Goods in the valley. So there you go. Your sins go after you. Indeed, and uh, Lenny was on the hot strip mill, as I said earlier, and uh, we were working for Balderstone, mm. which at that stage was... Uh, South South Australian based company and uh, they were uh, over doing basically the whole mechanical fit out. The rest of the, the job was the steel, the structural steel and um, the shed and the concreting was uh, actually done by direct labour. Everyone was hired as a, uh, I was in fact working on the concrete gang before I got in with Lenny and uh, started getting uh, properly educated as a scaffolder. But it was a, it's an interesting job and people talk about inclement weather and all these things that we've got now. And yes, we did have inclement weather in the uh, mid-70s. It was in the award, but the enforcement was a real problem. Oh, yeah. Because there was a 32-hour-a-month limit on what mm. you could get paid. Yeah, the wet weather calendar. Yep, the wet weather calendar. And down at um, the Hot Strip Mill... I think it was eight days in two weeks mm. and we didn't come out the last time it rained and we because we weren't getting paid, we didn't come out and we didn't go back on the job till we got bloody paid all the hours. The same clause is still in the award but people don't realise that once upon a time that used to be enforced. Yep, just like there was, uh, there was a classification in the, uh, in the award for unskilled labourer and all others, yes. something like that. Yes. Uh, was never enforced properly, but or never never relied on. But uh, on the on the inclement weather front, can I tell you that uh, my first job down in the valley was actually working for Leightons, and they were building the uh, the first uh, lift lift tower and lobby lift tower for uh, A station, and uh, it was about four hundred at, at full height, about four hundred foot, which is what the height of the power station was. It would have been what, that came up behind it, and they were behind schedule, and they were running shift work. And I was, uh, you'd go on the night shift or the day shift, and the SEC was that uh, freaked out about how how it was holding up the work coming behind it that they actually organised a surreptitious funny money deal, which if you could uh, if you could turn the the jump form around in a certain number of shifts, you got this big extra pay that would be paid to you at the end of the thing. Uh, and no one would be any other wiser, no tax, nothing. So this is the SEC actually bankrolling this. Yep. If you did it, if it took an extra shift, it was less, and if you took an, an, another extra shift, it was less, and if you took an even further extra shift, it was nothing. Mm. So that was the incentive for people to get on with the job, and every payday you just get this little extra slip in your pay packet that gave you an indication, handwritten, of how much money you'd sort of accumulated that you are going to get it 
in the end of the job, cash in hand. Yep. And the the guy who was the I was the shop steward for the for that shift, and the guy who was the foreman was a pretty uh, nasty, evil fellow. I can't remember his name now. But one night, you know, I'm telling, I'm saying we can't be working because of inclement weather, and there was no one else around except this crew working here, you know. And by that stage, we were well over a hundred foot up in the air. And he basically threatened me. There was no one else around, and he just said, "You know, accidents. You, you, you've got to calm down, son." He goes with this inclement weather stuff because it would be really easy for an accident to happen here over the side. No one would be any of the wise as to how that had happened. And I was a bit freaked out about it, but I didn't take it too seriously. But can I tell you that it might have been a couple of years later? I pick up the paper, and this bloke's all over the front page: murder, suicide killed his wife and kids and himself. Yep. And I thought, wow, that's the bloke who threatened me one night at the top of the tower. Yes, well, it was rough and ready in the valley and there was a lot of disputes. And uh, There were. I, I remember one when the, uh, we were out, locked out for a while, and that's the one and only time I worked interstate. So very to, to keep the wolf from the door, the Sydney company I was working for then, Skyline Scaffolding, uh, sent us up to uh, Sydney to work at the Clyde Refinery, which was having a massive shutdown. It's closed down now, near the Rosehill Race Course. And so uh, we worked up there for a few weeks until this lockout was over. And, you know, he... They were they were being very dodgy, you know. They had crews working for different contractors, and they were sort of shuffling these crews around, so they were double dipping, you know. And there were forever foremen from these various contractors running around, saying, "Where are the scaffolders that are supposed to be here?" And because it was a massive site, and they were mm. all over the joint. And sometimes they'd even spirit a crew off site altogether to do some other job down the road but they were still on and you had to clock on and clock off every time you went there. After we came back, about a couple of months after we were back in the valley, Skyline brought some, some more crews down from Sydney and these blokes walked into the smoko shed and we introduced ourselves and I said, oh, g'day, you know, my name's Phil Court. And this bloke goes to me, you're Phil Court? I didn't even know you existed, mate. I've been clocking your card off at Clyde Refinery for the last two months. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I never got the money for that. <laughs> and Skyline disappeared. And just, and just for the record, this is Skyline from Sydney, yeah. not Peter no Welsh. Re- no relation. <laughs> his, his crew was also Skyline, and Peter has been on Creatures of the Industry and talking about uh, contract scaffolding and how he started and where it all went to. But uh, he, he went to Sydney himself. With Grocon, and uh, I don't think there was any ghosting with Grocon. <laughs> Bruno and Reno ran a pretty tight ship. But anyway, one of the things you did get involved in, in your time in uh, Melbourne with the BLF, was uh, the sponsor of this program, the Concrete Gang. You like to talk about that, because you did come to the uh, 40th anniversary of the show, Back in uh, 2016, and uh, the crew was there. Uh, Ian Bolton, the late Bob Mancor, and uh, various people were on that show. But you and Ian were the originals. 
Uh, yes. Well, we were the originals. Um, it was not long after uh, 3CR actually got its licence. It may have even been just in the lead-up to that. And the BLF was one of the members of the alliance that made up 3CR, and so that meant that they had the opportunity for a radio program and I can't remember how it actually started now, but uh, Gallagher was looking for volunteers to run a radio program on behalf of the BLF. And so he sent Mickey Lewis down to collect you. <laughs> no, no, not that I recall, but but anyway, uh, Ian and I put, put our hands up. Uh, I can't remember exactly who else might have been involved in that initial one. But uh, that was the beginning of it, and uh, we sat around trying to work out a name for it, and uh, we sort of brainstormed that over a beer or two, and uh, we decided that uh, the Concrete Gang would be a good name for the program, and it stuck, so I'm pleased about that. And we gave each other uh, pseudonyms. Ian was Mario, which sounded really good with his sort of semi-Scottish accent, and I was Joe, as I recall. And we used to uh, pre-record the program on little cassette tapes at my uh, the house I was living in in Richmond at the time. We that's what we usually used, and uh, and then the tapes would would go to air. The yeah. studios, which were then in Armadale, they were. That's where they started. Yeah. So I didn't actually spend a lot of time in the actual studios. We basically did these things on cassette tape. At the time, it was pretty rough and ready. I can tell you. I was still involved, I think, when they moved premises. Because yeah. they went to Cromwell Street in Cromwell, Collingwood yeah. and then finally into Smith Street on the Fitzroy side. Yeah, that was well after my time, yeah. but I think yeah. I was still involved with the Cromwell Street. Yeah. We started the show with the Concrete uh, Gang's theme, the Builder's Labourers song. And this is where, hopefully, we clear up uh, one issue. You didn't sing it, but you wrote the words. I did indeed, yes. Uh, I must. Which does say something about, something about your ambitions in the world of entertainment <laughs> and also, given the words in the uh, song, something about your political activities at the time. Yeah, uh, well, I, had a, I figured I had a little a bit of a knack at doggerel, you know, rhyming sort of stuff. It's about it. But I was involved at that uh, time with a bloke called Danny Hallier, who was the, uh, still the policy officer for the federal office of the BLF. And Norm uh, Gallagher, I, I think, had swallowed this, uh, this idea that uh, Danny Hallier and a bloke called Jeff Gold, as a publisher, had, 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 uh, had sort of sold him on or, or spruiked to him about the idea of having a songbook, a builder's labourer's songbook, that would have all these left-wing, radical, working-class-type songs in it, Etc. And to fit in with the Australian independence movement. Australian independence movement and all of the left wing movements that had preceded it, etc. And so Gallagher gave that the blessing, and it was Danny Hallier and I who had the job of uh, basically writing it, collect, uh, deciding what songs went into it, etc. And it became obvious that uh, there wasn't an actual song specific enough to be write about builders, labourers in the industry. So the challenge was, and I think Gallagher might have even put it down, is we need a song to start the book with. It's actually a builders, labourers song. Mm. So that was the challenge. So uh, over a few beers, I had the job of uh, trying to knock one together. 
And I liked Australian bush music, and I just picked a tune, which is actually an Irish tune, but it's in a lot of uh, Australian bush songs, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, across the Western Plains or whatever. We crack our whips like thunderbolts. So I thought, that's a good, that's a good tune. I'll use that. And that's, and that's how I started writing it. And uh, so, yeah, that was written uh, in 1976 in Richmond. And uh, it was only later that it was recorded, but it was to be the lead song in the Builders Library songbook. And subsequently developed into the theme song of the Concrete Gang and still is. Yeah. Where's the royalties for that, Ralph? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Let's just say it went to the Australian independence movement and we can't find them. (laughs) Fair enough. But, in fact, it's uh, a great contribution to the history of the industry because it is the song. The industry really doesn't have uh, very many songs, but that one is the one that people know. And even on the Radiothon recently, that's how it started, with that song and people ringing in, talking about the Concrete Gang over all these years and the fact that the song was still played. And there was people uh, talking to an old scaffy, Alan Coulson. Remember Alan? He worked uh, for The Bone and uh, we were talking about scaffolding in in the early days uh, when we both were in the industry on the tools and also the Concrete Gang, and Alan's been listening to the program for 40 years, 40 plus years, and listening to the song. <laughs> so there you go. It's uh, all happening. But what we'll do now is just uh, remind people, you're listening to Creatures of the Industry on Community Radio 3CR. And we'll now go into the second phase of your career in the industry but no longer on the tools. So in the 1980s, a lot of things were happening. And one of the things that happened was the introduction of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, the ending of the Department of Labor and Industry and the creation of WorkCover and WorkSafe and all the rest of that. Uh, But there was a long lead-up to that. There was a lot of disputes about health and safety not just in the construction industry, but the construction industry had a, uh, shall we say, a very high profile. There were a lot of incidents. I refuse to to use the word accident because very few of them are accidents. They could have been avoided. They are incidents. Everything from the collapse of the Westgate Bridge all the way through to a bloke I can remember the day he died, uh, a scaffolder, working in Collins Street in front of one of the, putting the scaffold up in front of the arcades. Uh, I think it was M-Bank Arcade, I think it might have been. And uh, the bloke working above him dropped a uh, component, hit him down and it went into uh, Collins Street. All of that stuff, there were issues after issue after issue. And the Kane government, with whom we later blued about the deregistration of the BLF, nevertheless set out to do something different in terms of an Occupational Health and Safety Act. And the fact that it's still around and it's a bit cranky, a bit slow, it's a bit cumbersome, it's all not 100%, but the basics were sound and it has kept going. So how was it that you ended up taking this career change? 
Okay, so the background, I just need to give you a little bit of yep. background that led up to me moving in, in that direction. You're quite, I mean, I, I, I remember that, you know, things were very, very rough and ready. If we talk about when I was down the valley, for example, with the power station construction, uh, there was, uh, even in the industry agreements that were, that were, uh, negotiated there, there were, uh, there were two levels of height money. There was height money for those that could operate behind guardrails or on solid construction. And there was height money for scaffolders and riggers and dogmen because they were expected to be able to be like ballerinas on the steel. Yep. And if you try adjacent to live edges. Yep. And if you and and in trying to actually uh, get to improve that situation, so it wasn't necessary for them to walk the steel, you actually ran into resistance from Blake saying, "You're just trying to take money off me, mate, because you know uh, anyone will be able to do this stuff." Uh, he said. You know, and all of that. So there was those sort of issues. Um, at the, at, in fact, at Yalorn W, when they were building the, the final two units of Yalorn W, there was something like a dozen high-rise fatalities for those two units. But the guy who was the uh, DLI inspector at Loyang, Bert Workman, swore black and blue this will not happen under his watch. And I saw the first example of a fair dinkum inspector in action uh, when I was at Loyang and they were doing cable tunnels. to uh, So they'd do a bulk excavation and then they'd build these cable tunnels basically above ground and then backfill. And the cable tunnels, the formwork for them, for the concrete pour, uh, would be about three, three and a half metres high and they'd uh, pour the concrete for these massive runs of these cable tunnels, and they they had on-site batching plants at Loyang, and there were there were trucks. They just keep barrelling the trucks in, and there they were ready to start this absolutely massive pour of these things. And there was no edge protection, uh, scaffolding platform, whatsoever. The concreters were expected to duck and dive around the top of the formwork you know, with concrete kipples and that kind of thing and um, without any edge protection whatsoever. And Bert Workman was standing there and he literally stopped them and he was surrounded by all these top brass from the SEC and the contractors arguing with him to get, get it all happening and he would not budge. He said, you will not start this until these blokes are protected from falling. Meanwhile, there was a there was an increasing line of concrete trucks lined up, going nowhere from these batching plants, and and that made a massive impact on me, and it made me realise that, you know, being in that government regulatory role, actually meant that you could you could help improve things, you could actually stand up for safety standards that were just otherwise being flouted or people turning a blind eye to. And so not long after that, with his, with his encouragement, he actually recommended me to the guy running the industrial skills at the Yalorn TAFE um, who needed another instructor to, to teach scaffolding. And he recommended me for that. And I started doing that uh, part-time, but not in at the Yalorn TAFE College, but um, by mutual agreement, we were actually running the scaffold school on-site at Loyang. And we were doing the uh, lessons in uh, one of the ICAL smoko sheds, one of the big ones. 
and by mutual agreement, we used to do the pracs on one of the RDOs um, in at the scaffold in one of the scaffold yards in Terralgan. So we could actually get in there and spend a day building stuff and all of that. And these guys were working in amongst it anyway. Yep. So for a couple of years there, I was actually uh, I was actually teaching scaffolding that way for your lawn TAFE. Um, so I guess the next logical step from that that was almost a preparation for uh, for joining the Department of Labor. Um, as a scaffolding inspector, OHS inspector, but specifically, particularly in that area, because I really had to learn the regulations in order to teach it. Oh, yeah. And more importantly, I had to learn why, you know. It's important principles, not just the words, but what's the principle behind it? Why is that rule there? And it became pretty obvious the more I looked into it that behind most of these regulations, there's a dead body or two buried. Um, so hard, hard, uh, hard won lessons. I became very respectful for that legacy and that it needed to continue. Well, the Department of Labor and Industry had regulations uh, from at least the 1970s. And I remember when I did my scaffold ticket, you had, as you mentioned earlier, a uh, learner's permit with your photo. Yes, I did have hair at that stage and I can prove it. Um, and two, you went to a course uh, after hours. I went to Swinburne and uh, Mr Roberts, he was called Mr Roberts, the uh, supervisor of scaffold inspectors, ran the course. And you had to learn, my memory is correct, I'll stand correction, but my memory is you learnt about timber scaffold. You learnt about modular scaffold. You learnt about tube and fit. You learnt about every type of scaffold there was and what you used and why you used it and how it all fitted together. And the same with the Riggers Handbook. You learnt the whole lot from the book as well as the practical and they checked up on you. Someone had to actually sign off that you were up to scratch, that you'd had the experience that this is the, all the different types of works that you'd performed. So I take it from what you're saying about the valley is people were moving to even enhance that more by trying to get people sort of learning after school but actually on the job, getting some practical stuff and being checked up on, on a continuous basis. And some good scaffolders came out of that, uh, the ones who learned it on the job and basically never had a licence till it was uh, issued uh, retrospectively. Always reckon they're the best scaffolders, but I think the, the process you're talking about, especially when it was done properly, was a, a damn fine way of doing it. Yes, it was, and I and and I'll just take that opportunity to say that the uh, I agree with you about the best scaffolders were often the ones who had never bothered to get a ticket back in those days and the, probably one of the very best scaffolders I ever worked with was a guy, who, an Aboriginal guy who actually came from North Queensland, a guy called Maxie Mosman, um, who, was, who really was barely literate because of the, you know, the circumstances of his own upbringing. But, um, and he, and he, finally, he finally did get a ticket um, through one means or another. We won't perhaps go into that, but... He was he did he was uh, just a brilliant scaffolder and 
I, I was really uh, blessed to be able to work with him in the valley for quite a while, uh, where it was all tube and fitting, yep. all tube and coupler there. It had to be, and uh, it was. And I always regarded tube and coupler as ch- coupler, I should say, as an art rather than anything else. You know, the modular scaffolds like Meccano set, but tube and coupler—that's the real scaffolding in my book. And that was, uh, and that was a great experience working down there. But my back uh, wouldn't take it. Um, one thing. I did really foolishly, or no one told me any better, was um, ergonomics. And so, you know, it was it was a very macho kind of environment. You know, you would walk around with two 16-foot planks on your shoulder, not one, or maybe, you know, maybe two 16-foot tubes. You would pride yourself in the fact that you could pick up a 21-foot tube and lift it vertically without it touching the ground and look through the end of it above your head and then drop it down again, and that was so that you knew you could do a high splice on a scaffold if you ever needed to. So there was all that kind of stuff, and 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 that affected my my back basically, you know, because I always carried things on the same shoulder, which is pretty stupid. And eventually, uh, I was getting problems from that, and I was told um, after some X-rays that I could either keep going doing what I was doing, but I'd probably end up in a wheelchair in about five years or I could look for another occupation. And that was that was what really made me uh, turn from, from working on the tools and teaching the subject, which I really like, like doing, um, to, to, to having to do a non-physical job. And being an inspector seemed the appropriate one. I'd applied once and got knocked back because I wasn't a tradesman. But the uh, second time I applied, they'd modified the rules a little, um, and I went in for an interview. At the end of 86, I was back in Melbourne then working for my last scaffold company, which was GKN Mills, at the end of 86. Albert Street, Brunswick. Correct, yes. And um, they said said to me in the interview, why should we give you the job? And I said, well, I'm young and enthusiastic and also, you know, I've, broken most of the rules I'm supposed to enforce and it takes a thief to catch a thief so anyway whatever they offered me the job and I started there in 87 um, and in the lead up to that I, I went down to the BLF office um, and I'd maintained my BLF membership right through the D-Reg and the BWIU and the, all of that in fact down the valley we had, we, had, we had to be in three unions technically to be able to work in the same day AWU, BLF and FIA, although we, I never did join the AWU, but I was a shop steward with two books at one stage for the FIA and the BLF. But uh, Lenny Rourke got SGB to pay the BLF uh, one as long as we paid the cheaper one, mm. which was the FIA, cheap, cheaper in more ways than one, actually. So uh, I went into the BLF to basically resign my membership BLF office and had what you might call an exit interview with Normie Wallace and um, I'm just looking at my last card now uh, which which was from that period and I explained to him that I really wanted to take this job on fair income and I didn't think it was right for me to continue to be a member of a union in the industry that I was now expected to um, have some regulatory responsibility for. I felt that that was a conflict of interest and I didn't want to have that any longer. 
and he understood that and he and he said that's fine and um he just said to me his parting words were well you know he goes um just don't ever forget where you've come from and what you've been that's all i ask and i hope i lived up to that ralph what for my 22 years um with the department of labor and what became WorkSafe? Well, the thing is that uh, quite a number of builders' labourers became inspectors. Ian Bolton got mentioned earlier. Um, there were probably Noel Baker, a few others from the crane industry. Uh, blokes. And then there's also carpenters and uh, other tradesmen who became inspectors because, correct me if I'm wrong, there was actually a view that developed around the mid-80s when the Occupational Health and Safety Act was being put together. There was a view that they needed people with practical experience. The theoretical part could be developed afterwards, but you had to have the, the practical. And the attitude... Change and I think um, there's a lot of people recruited to the then Department of Labor, as you say, became WorkSafe. But um, I'm not so sure that's the case these days. <laughs> yes. Uh, they, uh, well, I, theory I finally for, theory first, second, and third, and the practical stuff, yeah. where you can actually walk onto a job and go, that hasn't been put up right. Yeah. And you know it as soon as yeah. you see it. As soon as you see a bloke pick up a component for the modular scaffold, you can tell whether he's he's got any experience or not. Yeah, that's right. He's got a quick stage standard at ninety degrees to the wrong to the wrong side or something. Yep. That's all you need, or whatever, or putting a putting a, a fitting on upside down or whatever. And where, right. you, and where you put right. the ties and yep. which is the only tube all and fit most of them deal with these days. Yeah. But yeah. Look, uh, I, I finally retired from uh, WorkSafe in, in 2008, so I, uh, I'm not really clear no. on what a lot that's happened since then. But I do, I do take your point, Ralph, that I think that you know there's been more of an emphasis on um, on, on paper qualifications, OHS diplomas, and those sort of things. That's probably uh, that that was starting to come in when we were recruited, when I was recruited. Those qualifications didn't even exist, yep. um, and uh, I think I think it was correct that they were to, that they were consciously trying to recruit people from different parts of the industry uh, to have a reasonable coverage. So there were yep. guys that were involved in trenching and excavation, guys that had been crane drivers, riggers, uh, electricians, plumbers. Um, Carpenters, you name it, you know, yep. um, as well as as well as scaffolders, and that was the right approach. Um, and and I think it, I think by and large it, it it worked fairly well. But also, I'd put to you that there was a problem that developed over the journey, and it's probably still a problem today. Where originally it was the regulator, and the regulator took action. Now. The emphasis is on voluntary compliance. There aren't too many prosecutions unless there's a fatality and they, even those prosecutions seem to take forever. There's, there's just this, there was a push to 
seriously upgrade occupational health and safety in the construction industry and then they tried to take away the construction component and then it was just the general inspectors they might know about warehousing and forklifts or something like that and they got put into a situation where they were dealing with something they didn't have the faintest idea about. That got rectified but employers pushed back and I seriously argue that as a consequence voluntary compliance has actually diluted the regulatory role and I think everyone is probably aware of that and I think the industry, I won't talk about other industries that I don't know about it but our industry, the construction industry has been adversely affected and the fact that there is still issues about asbestos removal, the fact that there are still issues with working from height, with the use of machinery and all that, which are such simple matters to deal with. I saw one case recently where a, uh, a sling had a tag on it that said this sling has to be used according to a certain capacity and it has to be checked Blah, 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 blah. The number was wrong. Even on the sling, if you went to that, you were not checking it in accordance with the requirement. Someone had put a number on the tag which was incorrect. And no one cared. Yes. But, but I would say this, I would say this, Ralph, if I reflect back on my time with the regulator, mm. basically from 87 through to 2008, Yes, I was involved in having to investigate a, a number of fatalities and they always very much stick in your mind and um, you end up having to give reports to coroners, inquiries and and prosecutions and those kinds of things and um, and there is always there is always systemic nearly always anyway systemic failures at the involved in those fatalities but can I say that a number of really important improvements have occurred certainly over that time. For example, uh, in, during my time, the, uh, the, the scaffolding standards were um, updated, even metricated, and became nationally uniform. Certificates of competency, when I started, uh, if you were travelling from job to job and following the the bucks around Australia, you needed uh, seven or even eight different scaffolded tickets, one from each jurisdiction. Those sort of things were really antiquated, so bringing in national consistency in that area I think has been really important. And, and also things like uh, foundations for safety coming about, which brought employer organisations and, and the construction unions together with the regulator and it was able to pioneer quite a few things like uh, you know c- uh, codes and, and, and guides on uh, precast concrete for example on pre- precasting uh, on demolition on working from heights introducing um, induction training uh, first of all in a, in, in a voluntary way through the red ticket system and then that sort of turning into a regulatory requirement with what I think they call the white cards now. Is that correct? Um, And once again, some national uniformity in in that kind of area. And 
and and so some of that stuff I remember also us being in, involved in traffic uh, traffic management campaign we had a, a SWAT campaign going that really did put a focus on an area that was that really was overdue for some attention and I like and I'm pleased now when I when I go around the streets and I can see uh, really good traffic management in place a lot of the time not all of the time by any means but compared with Compared with how it was a few decades ago, um, you know, those there has there has been uh, quite marked change in a lot of areas that it, we shouldn't we shouldn't um, I suppose ignore or we should acknowledge that those improvements have been made. But I would agree with you that there's still a long long way to go, and the rules are not always carried out. True, and. Uh Laws and regulations in every area are never fully carried out. No. But my problem is when, say, the mention of traffic management. Vic Roads produced a code of practice for their own roads and with a collateral uh, application to what are called council roads. But also remember how that came about. And that was a huge dispute on the upgrade of the Geelong Freeway and that was the union shutting it down till such time as people working adjacent to the road were actually protected and we proved for example that even at 80k a truck could go over concrete barriers. People needed to be uh, shall we say uh, hidden from the traffic so they've got the screens up with the, with the uh, coverings on them because people keep looking and then they lose control of the vehicle and there was just so yeah. many issues on that road and people were killed and people were injured and yeah. there was all sorts of things went on. And Vic Rose, to their credit at the time, actually wanted to do something. But you just... I remember that. I remember what you're talking around, about. That's right. You look around the streets and you just go, lots of colour and movement, but is it actually working? And it's, that's, that's my problem with WorkSafe. Is it actually working? And I su- suggest to you that in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, that the pressure needs to go back on. The Liberal Party, when they were in power, they weren't in power long, but when they were in power, absolutely tried to downgrade WorkSafe, even uh, way below the standards, which I thought weren't acceptable. But I think there's a, a discussion to be gone on with, and if we're adding to that by having this conversation, and hopefully people will start thinking again about the Occupational Health and Safety Act and the good things that are there, the involvement of people in their work. So the boss doesn't just come to you and say, well, here's the uh, work procedure. Now you're supposed to sit down and you're supposed to discuss it and you're supposed to agree. All that sort of stuff with real power going to the rank and file health and safety rep, great thing. But I think it's a... It's a movable feast, unfortunately, and uh, we're going to keep eating at that table. We need to do a bit more. Yeah. And, and, and empowerment is a key to it. Yeah. 
Um, and empowerment also needs knowledge and education. And if I can reflect back once again on my time with WorkSafe, um, I think one of the things I'm really, really pleased um, that we were able to develop, and I think it started in the late 90s actually, was what is now the safety soapbox that comes out you know, quite regularly. But that just started, um, well, I actually started that um, back in the 90s as an email chain. Mm. And what it used, and in particular, um, it was when digital phones were just starting off and things like that. And we started off this thing called Bodgy Scaffold of the Week. And um, there weren't enough pages to cover them all. No, but the, and people were able to use their phone or whatever to take a photograph of a bodgy scaffold and email it in. Mm. And, and we'd sit there and, and we'd write a bit of a often sarcastic but with a strong safety message commentary around it um, and circulate it. And that actually started to literally go viral. And that's what we wanted. We, we were hoping by this and, and its companion piece, Absolute Shocker of the Week, which was, you know, a dangerous photos other than scaffolding. Um, and the purpose behind that was to try and give people, ordinary people on the job, a bit more confidence in standing up to the, to the foreman or whoever was trying to Encourage them to to work unsafely or to do unsafe things or whatever. That we thought by by actually providing visual examples of these things and explaining in some simple way just why that was wrong or what it should have been instead of that, that that would actually help to empower people enough to have a bit more confidence to say no, I know that's wrong and I'm not going to do that. And I'm I'm pleased that that actually continued continued on. You know, quite a deal past my retirement. <laughs> we changed its name down the track to Safety Soapbox. In other words, jump on your soapbox and let's talk about safety. <laughs> well, there's a lot more to be talked about in terms of safety and um, probably also my favourite subject about inspectors actually acting like regulators. But anyway, we have gone a fair old time now and... Uh, we might now talk about your next career change, <laughs> which is why we're sitting here at Scott's Church mm. in Collins Street. Well, I'm not too sure whether I'm the first scaffolder in Australia, probably, maybe, the first scaffolder who um, ended up becoming an ordained Presbyterian minister. Uh, but that's what I actually... That is mm. a jump and a half, brother. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I can do funerals, weddings, anything. But, um, but how did that come about? Just very so, briefly. So I'll just did you feel, if, if you don't mind asking the question directly, did you feel that there was nothing more that you could contribute in WorkSafe or, and therefore was not as satisfying or you know, as fulfilling as it should have been? Or did you just simply want to, change direction in your life? Um, I think it was a bit of both, yeah. Ralph, to tell you the truth. I, I'd been a hard-bitten atheist, of course, as a, um, in my communist youth. Uh, that, w- that would go without saying. And even, uh, even though I ditched communism, 
um, after about 10 years. Uh, around about the time I realised that Pol Pot was probably one of the greatest uh, examples of uh, totalitarianism, which came about because I'd become a shop steward for a whole lot of Cambodian blokes and that was a real eye-opener. But um, I ditched all of that, but I'd maintained my atheism right up until basically um, about 2004. Um, and, and and then I just, I, I came to faith. I can't, re- I, I can't really explain the detail of that except that I just realised there was more to existence than the physicality aspect of it, that there is in fact a spiritual aspect to it. It came to me as a shock. I'd be the last person that ever would have uh, believed that or thought that, but it, it actually happened to me. And um, as a result of that, I ended up uh, being connected to Scott's Church. I started doing some uh, some night school, um, church history, etc. And and then um, I decided I'd get in, go into full time uh, training for for ministry. And I uh, and I transitioned from part time training to full time in two thousand and eight. Uh, and so. Put it this way, Ralph, I went from being being focused on physical, occupational health, safety and welfare to what I think was spiritual health, safety and welfare. That's my rationale for it. And it really was the start of another chapter in my career. Um, and, and that's a whole other story. But uh, I'm, re- I'm retired from that in a full-time way now, but I'm still connected as a retired, semi-retired Minister, and I'm a member of the Scots Church here in the city. And we're sitting in a very nice office overlooking uh, Collins Street. And uh, thanks to you and the uh, premises manager, I had a tour of of this magnificent structure. And I'm going to say that without any embarrassment because it was built and has been maintained by building and construction workers for well over, well over 150 years. And I can remember back, uh, personal experience, when I think it was, I'll stand correction, but I think it was Lodge Brothers, did a major refurb of the stonework uh, on on the church itself and uh, pay respect to a bloke who came from Hungary, uh, I think after the Second World War, he'd been through a lot, and Billabella was the bloke, and he was described as a carver. In fact, his training before the war was as a sculptor, and he came to Australia and basically hand-carved a lot of the ornamentation that goes on heritage buildings but he also had learnt all the skills uh, of replacing stonework uh, cleaning stonework and he at the time I met him back in the uh, mid 80s working on this very church uh, he was just on 80 and he was still teaching young apprentices the name of the game and it's a really was worth the tour today and thank you very much Phil because that was a great experience because we went up into the roof of the church and up into the spire and like the number of 
skills that are on display, bricklaying, stonemason, carpentry, plastering, rendering, you name it, it's all recorded here in an historic building. And uh, it was a great day out. (laughs) I've taken lots of pictures and I'll bore you all with it in due course. But just to finish off, looking back on your time in the industry, both directly on the tools and then in the regulatory role, what do you think might be the things that are highlighted in your mind when you're sitting there and your your brain suddenly goes snap and you go, what about that? That wasn't that wasn't bad, was it? Or you might say, Jesus, how did we survive that rubbish? Is there things that you would like to reflect on now, or people you'd like to reflect on now who have basically placed themselves in the back of your head and they they come to the front of your head every now and then? There's many people that come into my memory, my the back from the back of the head to my front of, front of my head at different times. Some of them were rogues, but many of them were just very, very admirable people um, who I owe a lot to, and you know, in different ways. I can think of the, the first scaffolder, uh, first scaffolder I worked with back back on the old Melbourne jail, um, and. And I owe so much. I owe so much to him. Um, I think of uh, I think of Lenny Rourke. I think of uh, Bert Workman. Mm. Um, I think of uh, colleagues like uh, Ian Bolton, mm. uh, both in terms of the Concrete Gang and, and scaffolding, but also in terms of uh, working with Worksafe. And uh, and I also think of people like that. I really uh, that I worked alongside as a regulator. People like Pat Preston. Um, and and some of the other uh, some of the other safety officers from you know the from the unions, uh, some from the employer side uh, that I got to have a lot of respect for, blokes like Tony Marino, for example, who also taught scaffolding down in the valley and was a scaffolder, mm. and never forgot it. So uh, a lot of these people, and, and yourself, Ralph, can I say? And uh, perhaps you won't talk about the Phil Cleary campaign, but um, oh yes, uh, you see, I was one of your scrutineers there. Yes, and, we uh, and we have crossed paths so many times. <laughs> so with those things, I had I, I look back with great fondness when I think of some of the fatal the fatals that I was involved in. I just, I just still shake my head, and and there's a there's a real grief there around that. Um, knowing knowing that those were uh, things that could have been prevented, and uh, something I used to say uh, quite a lot when I was involved in the industry, especially with the regulatory side of it, is that the most obscene the most obscene fatality is the one that nobody learns anything from, and. And, and that's something that's a, a bit of a mantra that I've had in myself. If someone's life is actually, if it's cost someone's life, the very least that we owe them, the very least that everyone owes them, is to get to the bottom of why that happened, what needs to change, and what it needs to make it change. And, I, and, and that is a continuing and ongoing challenge and a process, I think, for the industry. 
But if we have at least that attitude, we would hope there'd never be fatals or serious injuries. But for the ones that do occur, if nothing ever changes and nothing ever happens, that's an obscenity. Well, I'll put one little thing to you. I am, to this day, amazed. I'm incredulous, to use a big word, that there haven't been more deaths, more uh, accidents, or incidents really, where a large number of people have been killed and maimed and so on. I just don't understand how... Uh, so many bosses have been so bloody lucky over the journey. They all regret it, and yet those sorts of near misses continue to this day. And I, I don't know how people who are making a living out of this industry don't think they have an obligation to give back to this industry and keep it safe. And if it means losing a few bucks today or maybe slowing the job down and you don't finish it on time, what the hell? When a bloke can get lifted, standing on a load as he's trying to get the hooks down on to grip the, the chain, and he gets lifted halfway up a, a multi-storey building before anyone realises that he, he's being picked up and put at risk, and this bloke's holding on to the chains for dear life. How that could even be possible is beyond me. And yet that happened on the, a job in uh, Spring Street with one of the biggest builders in Australia. And that's what I don't understand. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would that wor- worry be one of the worries you have about the industry as it continues? Um, look, no, you're not putting words in my mouth. I mean, you know, I put on my theological hat and, you, and I might say that Part of understanding it is a thing called human nature, which is a pretty flawed thing, um, and uh, and that's uh, and that's got a lot to do with it. But but look, I just to go back to this issue, this will always be this will always be a challenge, and I'm not saying this in terms of saying just accept it and get on with it. I mean it's always a challenge to face up to. It's always a challenge to try better. And I agree with you that everyone who earns their living one way or another out of the construction industry ought to feel a responsibility to the industry as a whole, which is made up of human beings. And, and, uh, and, and, and some people do and some people don't. But the ones, the ones that have, that have that feeling of responsibility ought to be encouraged and supported in every way they can be. And, uh, and, and the ones that uh, refuse to have a, have a responsibility for that, well, there needs to be consequences. There needs to be consequences. And in fact, <coughs> we call this podcast Creatures of the Industry. Indeed. Rogues, scallywags, no-hopers, bosses and probably a few workers as well. Uh, people who drank too much didn't do everything they should have done when they should have done it, and so on. But they're in the industry. There is, however, these days, and probably always was, people who weren't creatures of the industry. They didn't have their lives in the industry 
and they celebrated the industry and they actually wanted to make a contribution, sometimes not as good as they should have, but make a contribution. It's the blow-ins and the blow-outs and the effect of capital floating into the industry and they want to make a profit regardless. And I can think of a few uh, companies that are now owned by people who are just equities, equity funds, who don't give us stuff. Just give us a, a return. I'll, I'll have less arguments with a scallywag boss than I'll have uh, with a, an equity company or firm fund which uh, is sitting over in New York and just going, just make sure the job's finished, just get it done to make that profit. That's, that's the bite for me. Um, but it's been a great conversation. And uh, on behalf of all the listeners to Creatures of the Industry and the Concrete Gang which sponsor it, I would like to uh, thank Phil for his uh, contribution today and also for the tour of uh, Scott's Church. And uh, thank you again. Well, thank you, Ralph. Thanks for the opportunity. And, uh, yeah, thank you, listeners, for uh, listening. And we'll go out the uh, same old way, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. There you go, he doesn't forget. Creatures of the Industry, Community Radio 3CR. We're putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.